With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Law of Attraction Radio Network. Are you ready to change your life in the next 30 minutes? It's time for Power in a Half Hour with Coach Mark. Get your notebooks ready. He's about to go in. Five, four, three, two, one. Coach Mark, let's go. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. This is Coach Mark, and you're listening to Power in a Half Hour. In the next 30 minutes, we're going to learn the tips, tricks, and techniques of the rich and the super-duper successful. So the quote that we're going to start today's show with is, Until we can manage time, we can manage nothing else. And that is Peter Drucker. Now, the title of today's show is, The Clock is Ticking. Nine tips to help you manage your time more effectively. I have to say that probably majority of emails that I get from all you listeners is about time management. It seems like no one is able to manage your time efficiently and effectively. So hopefully this show will help you. All right. This is going to be a great, great, great show. I want to thank everyone for listening. Want to remind you, if you ever want to go back and re-listen to any of the previous shows, you can go to my website, www.powerhh.com. You can also find me in the podcast section in iTunes. Just do a search for Coach Mark or power in a half hour, all right? If we're not friends on Facebook, my name on Facebook is Mark Starr. That's M-A-R-K-S-T-A-R-R. On Instagram and Twitter, it's at Coach Mark Speaks. I put out daily motivational videos, so make sure that you find me on there, become friends, and you can check out the daily goodness that I send out every single day. We also have a Facebook group for Power in a Half Hour. Just go into the group section on Facebook and do a search for Power in a Half Hour. We would love to have you in our group, all right? For all my listeners in the United States, I have a daily message service that sends out a motivational or inspirational message every single morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. To get those messages, all you have to do is text the letters BBD to 411 247. And for those of you that have not downloaded my book, you can download it for free at www.repeataftermebook.com. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Profile number one, Stephen Gordon. Now, Stephen grew up in a small town in New York called Plattsburgh. His father's family were merchants and they had three stores in town. Even though his parents were merchants, they kept him away from the stores because they wanted Stephen to become a doctor, a lawyer, or some kind of professional that wasn't a retailer. Stephen would go on to school and get his master's in counseling psychology. Although he loved the study and the theory of psychology, Stephen didn't like the practice of psychology. He had thoughts of becoming an entrepreneur, so he quit counseling and went to work as a carpenter and picked up cabinet making during the day, and at night he worked as a bartender. Stephen's wife was a teacher, and they lived in California. Stephen always had a passion for taking something older that was crafted using superb materials and technique and restoring it. 
1979, Stephen and his wife bought a three-story Queen Anne Victorian house. When he started working on the house, he couldn't find the hardware, moldings, and fittings that he needed. He eventually found the things that he needed in obscure places, but he also realized that he didn't have the money to buy the things that he needed. Stephen put a binder together with photocopied Venner catalog pages and had a sign that he paid $30 for that said restoration hardware that he hung on his porch. His plan was to sell to others to help him finance his own needs. Someone told him that if he doubled the price of everything, he would be okay. People ended up coming. If they bought six doorknobs, he would order 12. So essentially, they would pay for his doorknobs. What a ingenious idea after doing this for six months he realized that this could be a business you absolutely right it could be a business Stephen rented a 300 square foot space for $300 a month and invested a thousand dollars to buy one of each of a number of items a doorknob a towel bar and a light fixture that he could put on display. He would go on to open Restoration Hardware in 1980, working at the store in the day and working as a bartender at night. Now, this was the beginning of his business, right? He didn't initially go into it saying, you know what, I'm going to start a business, but he wanted to have some of these nice materials in his house, and he came up with an idea, you know what, because he realized that he had an ability to find some of these unique materials. So he said, you know what, if I double the price, Whatever I buy for someone else, I could go ahead and get for myself as well. So I can be able to satisfy my own needs. And this was the start of his business. This was the start of his business. The store became successful through word of mouth. Stephen sold items to locals as well as to the tourists who came for the salmon fishing and the redwoods on the weekends. Two years after opening the store, Stephen quit his job as a bartender at night to strictly focus on the store full-time. Soon after he quit his job as a bartender, Stephen opened another store. Although Restoration Hardware was growing, it definitely had its share of obstacles that needed to be overcame. One time in the mid-80s, Stephen ran so low on money that he wasn't going to be able to fund holiday inventory and he almost lost the company. Fortunately, he was able to get a loan from his father-in-law for $200,000 in which he paid back within a year. Stephen would soon open two new stores. Although his stores were growing, he was continually getting turned down by investors. Some felt that his company was too big. Some thought it was too small. They had all sorts of reasons why they wouldn't fund the business. At the time, Stephen felt like giving up. He knew that with the right funding, Restoration Hardware could become a major contender. Finally, in 1994, Stephen was introduced to an investment firm that would eventually invest $2.5 million into his business. With this investment, they were able to grow to 10 stores. By 1994, they began selling home furnishings. The 10 stores would grow to 65 stores. In 1998, Stephen took the company public. By 2001, Restoration Hardware expanded to 100 stores in 31 states, reaching $369.5 million in sales. Let's keep in mind, this is a company that he started just to be able to buy some of the materials that he wanted. He didn't have the money to buy everything that he wanted, so he said, you know what? For every one thing I buy for someone else, I can buy for myself. That's how he started this business. He didn't start it with a whole bunch of money. He didn't even start it to become a business in the beginning. 
He just wanted to get a few materials to help him fix up his home the way he wanted to fix it up. Today, Restoration Hardware has almost 3,000 employees and has 85 stores with over $1.5 billion in sales per year. Let's now take a look at some of the wise lessons that we can learn from Stephen. Number one, micromanaging can be useful. Stephen says that he doesn't have to touch every operational decision, but every product and presentation decision drives business. So he personally approved every product sold in restoration hardware. Number two, have a point of view. Stephen wrote sales copy explaining the history, aura, and sensibility of the things that his company sold. It gave the business a point of view and the merchandise became both a revenue producer and brand enhancer. And number three, hold on to your equity. At Restoration Hardware, Stephen sought investments at ever-increasing valuations. He said that it's best not to take more money than you need and only when you need it. Profile number two, Jeff Bezos. Now, we've talked about Jeff extensively in one of the past shows, but I just wanted to discuss him again since his company, Amazon, was highlighted in the news last week after they purchased Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. What's even more amazing to me is that Amazon stock went up $14 billion after the news was released. Now, the increase in their stock covered the entire cost of the purchase of Whole Foods. For those of you that are unfamiliar with Jeff Bezos, let's briefly recap his story. Jeff was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1964 to two teenage parents. His parents were married for less than a year when they got a divorce. His mother married a Cuban immigrant named Mike Bezos. When Jeff was four, who ended up adopting Jeff. At age five, Jeff watched the Apollo 11 landing and decided at that early age that he wanted to become an astronaut. Now, many times we underestimate the effect that these experiences have on young kids. Even though Jeff did not become an astronaut, he founded Blue Origin, which is an aerospace manufacturer that is developing technologies that will enable private human access to space. Now, he didn't become an astronaut, but guess what? His company is going to help to take regular humans to space. Never underestimate the experiences, the effect that experiences can have on our young folks. Now, again, at an early age of eight, Jeff was excessively into reading books, so much that his parents worried that he was too bookish, so they enrolled him into football. While in high school, his family moved to Miami where he attended Miami Palmetto High School. Jeff graduated as the valedictorian before he enrolled into Princeton. After Jeff graduated from Princeton, he wanted to start his own company but opted to join a startup instead. Two years later, after he left the company he was working for, he again wanted to start another company but decided to go and work on Wall Street. In 1989, Jeff co-founded a fax newsletter startup in his spare time, but he was unable to raise the money to fund his startup. In 1994, Jeff realized that the internet grew 2,300% in one year, and while brainstorming with his boss, he came up with an idea for the everything store. Jeff made a list of 20 types of things to sell, and he decided that he would sell books. Remember, when he was a child, he was obsessed with books. He was obsessed with books. Here it is years later. 
he decides that he's going to be one of the first people to sell books on the Internet. When he told his boss, he reminded Jeff that he had a very good job on Wall Street and advised him against quitting. When Jeff told his parents what he was planning to do, they also advised him against quitting his stable job. Jeff went against everyone's advice and he quit his job anyway and packed up his belongings and him and his wife moved to Seattle. Once Jeff got to Seattle, he set up his office in his garage where, along with two employees and his wife, they began developing software for his new business. Jeff started the business with $10,000. Now, during this time, Jeff took a three-day course on selling books. In July of 1995, Jeff launched Amazon.com. The company took off with no press or promotion. Now, within the first 30 days, Amazon sold books across the United States and in 45 countries. After the first two months, sales reached $20,000 a week, growing faster than Jeff and his team even envisioned. In 1995, Jeff tried to raise money predicting that Amazon would do $74 million in sales by 2000. Investors would laugh at him. They laughed at him. They said, are you crazy? You're not going to be able to sell $74 million worth of books in a year? Are you crazy? Now, Jeff was actually wrong. By 2000, Amazon's net sales were over $1.64 billion. Now, during a dinner meeting in 1996, a Barnes & Noble CEO threatened to crush Amazon. Oh, was he so wrong? In 1997, Amazon went public. Amazon continued to grow as in 1998 they began selling CDs and videos and then later clothes, electronics, and toys through major retail partnerships. During the dot-com crash, many startups busted while Amazon continued to flourish. Over the next 20 years, Amazon would grow into one of the biggest companies in the world with a valuation of over $486 billion. This is the company that Jeff quit his job for and started out of his garage with his wife and two employees with $10,000. Today, that company is worth almost one half, not million, one half, not billion, but one half trillion dollars. They make more money than a lot of countries that are out there. The business that this man started with $10,000 just selling books on the internet is now worth $486 billion. Jeff Bezos is currently the second wealthiest person in the United States and the third wealthiest on the planet behind Bill Gates and Amancia Ortega with a net worth of $84.1 billion. And I can promise you this, in the next five years, probably even sooner than that, Jeff Bezos is going to be the wealthiest man in the world because Amazon.com is the biggest retailer in the world. It's only a matter of time before he passes Amancia Ortega and Bill Gates. Let's now take a look at Jeff's lessons of success. Number one, have no regrets. When Jeff was deciding on whether or not he should quit his job to start an internet company, he decided to look forward in his life to age 80. And from age 80, he looked backwards and he asked himself if he would regret his decision. Then he asked himself if he would regret, if he would regret not attempting to start in the company, and that's how he came up with his decision. 
just as that you should want to minimize the amount of regrets that you will have. Now, this is an amazing idea. I never thought about this before. What Jeff does is he goes to age 80 and looks backward. And he said, you know what? Am I going to regret starting this business or am I going to regret not starting this business? And I challenge each and every single person, every time you have a major decision, every time you are faced with something and you don't know which way to go, advance to age 80 or age 90 or whatever age you want to advance to and ask yourself, will you regret doing it or will you regret not doing it? And more times than not, you're going to regret not making that move. Even if you make the move and it doesn't work out the way that it should work out, you will still have learned some lessons and at least you won't have any regrets. Because the worst thing in life is that when you get to age 80 or 90 years old to have regrets of all these things that you wish you would have done that you didn't do. Number two, follow your heart, not your head. Just as that many kids and adults do figure out what their passions are. The problem is, is that sometimes we let our intellectual selves overrule those passions. We let our thinking brain get in the way. Follow your heart, not your head. Number three, invest more in the product than marketing. Just as that he's going to put a vast majority of his energy, attention, and dollars into building a great product or service and put a smaller amount into shouting about it. He knows that if he builds a great product or service, his customers will tell each other about it. Kind of like that, um, that, that quote from the movie Field of Dreams, build it and they will come. Number four, focus on the customer. Jeff says that customers like low prices, big selections, and fast delivery. These things aren't going to change over the next 10 or 20 years. Amazon focuses on these things because they know that's important to the customer. Amazon puts its focus on putting the customer first. Number five, focus on your passion. Jeff's advice to any entrepreneur is to focus on something that you're passionate about. You can't follow what everyone else thinks is the right thing to do. You have to pick something that you think is interesting, that has the ability to create real customer value and stay right there and let the wave catch you. Number six, take a risk. Jeff says that whatever it is that you want to do, there will be risk in your life. Risk is a necessary component of progress. No risk, no progress. A lot of us want to stay inside that comfort zone, but guess what? No progress in the comfort zone. You have to take risk in order to move forward in life. The people that don't take any risk don't move anywhere. They stay in the same position. Matter of fact, they don't even stay in the same position. They end up moving backwards in life. Number seven, be stubborn on vision, but flexible on details. Let me repeat that one. Be stubborn on vision, but flexible on details. Know where it is that you have a vision to move towards, but be flexible on how you will get there. What you think may be the right way today, you might realize a year from now, a month from now, maybe even a week from now, that there's another path for you to get to wherever your ultimate goal is that will be faster, that will be better for you, right? So never, ever, never, ever, ever be wavering on your final vision, but just be flexible on how you will get there. Now, all of us wish that there was more time in the day. 
when the day's over and we look back at what we accomplished, most times we wonder where all the time disappeared to. For most people, time management is an issue. I want to say for all people, time management is an issue. Most of us, most of the time, we say things like, there's just not enough time in the day, or I don't know where I'll find the time, and I never have time for myself. What we have to remember is that every person has the same amount of time every single day. No matter how much money you have or don't have, you still only have 24 hours in a day. The reason why we feel we never have enough time is because we allow life's curveballs to distract us from doing the things that we should be doing. The problem for most people is that they have become so used to the distractions that they feel that they're just a part of life. Now, in order to get rid of the distractions, we must first identify them. Let's now take a look at some of the curveballs that life throws at us that we call distractions. Number one, commuting during rush hour. Now, many people spend hours of their day commuting back and forth to work, especially during rush hour. A 30-minute drive with no traffic can easily be turned into an hour and a half twice a day, totaling three hours. That is one-eighth of the day. If you cannot time shift your drive, what we mean by that is if you can't maybe alter your drive. So if you know that, okay, in order for you to get to work at 8 o'clock, you got to leave your house at 6 or 6.30, and that's during rush hour, try to see if either A, you can leave earlier, you can set up something with your boss where you don't have to be to work at 8 o'clock, maybe you can get to work at 7 or 6, so you're leaving a little bit earlier so you can get to work quicker and use up less of your time, or maybe even get to work a little bit later, but stay a little bit later. If you can't do that, then commit to utilizing that time to learn about something that you are interested in pursuing. Don't sit there the whole drive to work, the whole hour and a half there, and the whole hour and a half back listening to some music or doing something that's wasting time, right? Why don't you commit to learning something? If you're in the car for three hours every single day, do you know how many books you can go through inside of a week, inside of a month? Commit that time to learning something that can help improve you and make you that much better. Number two, gossiping. Remember, great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. Number three, watching TV. The average American watches five hours of TV per day, yet has time for nothing else. Five times seven, that's 35 hours a week. 35 hours a week, but will complain that they don't have enough time to start their business or start a new project or do whatever it is that they're passionate about or that interests them. 35 hours a week, almost the same amount of time that the average person spends working. Number four, hanging out with negative, unproductive people. Attitude is contagious. It's easier for you to become negative and unproductive if you spend the majority of your time with negative and unproductive people. Remember, you become the average of the people you spend the most time with. Number five, playing video games. Playing Angry Birds and Words with Friends can be addictive and get you no closer to accomplishing your goals. Number six, reading email. Now, email can be a trap that sucks you in for hours at a time. Avoid email ping pong where you talk to someone back and forth and sit two to three times a day where you check your email for a limited period of time. Number seven, answering the phone. Unimportant and unnecessary phone conversations can easily waste away hours a day. 
A call that was intended to only last for a few minutes can easily turn into an hour or two. Select certain times for the day for you to have phone conversations that aren't emergencies. I know you guys have experienced it. Someone calls you and says, oh, hold on, hold on. I just want to ask you a quick question, quick question. And then all of a sudden you guys get to talking and an hour or two hours passed away. You could never, ever get that time back. Number eight, surfing the web and social media endlessly. Now, I don't even have to elaborate on this one. I'm sure that every one of us has logged onto the computer to just check something really quick. And before we even realized it, an hour has passed by with us scrolling deep down on our timeline. We don't have to constantly update our status and check on other people's updated statuses. Number nine, attending unnecessary meetings. Now, one of the biggest time wasters in the workplace is unnecessary meetings where people meet to talk about having a meeting. Now, these people associate meetings with progress. No. And number 10, indecision. Spending time deciding on your every move for the day. Now, if you spend all your time deciding on what you're going to wear to work and then what you'll eat for breakfast and lunch and then what time you'll leave for work and what route you will take before you even realize it, the day is over. Let's now take a look at a few ways that we can use to effectively manage our time. Number one, record your current schedule. Figure out how you're currently using your time and what areas you can improve and how you can improve how you use your time. Number two, set aside 30 minutes at the start of each day for planning. Make a to-do list and schedule your day. This is very, very effective, all right? Sit there and record how you plan to spend every 30 minutes of your day. And then that way you could go back and check and say, you know what, did I spend from 9 to 12 the way that I intended to spend that time? Number three, delegate some work. If you don't have to do everything by yourself, then don't. Figure out what other people can help you with. Number four, batch similar tasks. Cut down on the time you waste transitioning between tasks by doing similar things at the same time. A good example of this is if you know that you need to leave your house to go run some errands, don't go and run an errand, then come back home, then do something else, then leave out again to run another errand. Try to batch all of your errands all at one time. Number five, use waiting and commuting time effectively. Now, when you're doing things like riding public transit or commuting or sitting in a waiting room, use that time productively. Don't use that time to jump on the internet. Use that time, bring a book with you, read a book while you're in a waiting room. Uh, kind of like what we talked about earlier. While you're driving to work, listen to an audiobook. Number six, turn tasks into habits. Make things easier by turning work tasks into a regular routine. Number seven, ignore phone calls and emails. Unless it's an emergency, leave your replies for later. Don't allow yourself to be needlessly interrupted. Number eight, minimize meeting times. More work gets done outside of the meetings than in them. Meetings sometimes are the biggest waste of time. Don't allow yourself to think that a meeting means progress. A lot of times it doesn't because you have time wasters in there. And number nine, block out social media. Reduce distractions. Don't open up social media until your work is done. 
All right, all right. Well, that's all the time that we have for today's show. I want to remind you, if you want to go back and re-listen, you can go to my website at www.powerhh.com and listen to not only this episode, but any of the previous over 140 episodes that we have on the website, all right? You can also find me in the podcast section in iTunes. Just do a search for Coach Mark or Power in a Half Hour. Now, I know you got three friends that could have benefited from this. I know you got three friends that are time wasters make sure you share this with them all right make sure you share this with them and the quote that we're going to end today's show with is either you run the day or the day runs you let me repeat that either you run your day if not your day runs you and remember time is our most valuable resource we are not getting any more time okay You can always find more money, but you can never, ever buy more time. And that quote that we said earlier, either you run the day or the day runs you, is from Jim Rohn. Hope you guys have an absolutely wonderful rest of your day, rest of your week, and until next show. Thanks for listening to Power in a Half Hour with Coach Mark. To listen or re-listen, go to powerinahalfhour.com. Follow Coach Mark on Instagram and Twitter at Coach Mark Speaks. Find Coach Mark on Facebook by searching for Mark Star. Like our Facebook fan page, Power in a Half Hour. And join our Power in a Half Hour Facebook group. See you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.